Welcome to This Week in Tech with Gene Destro. Now is your chance to get caught up in all that's happening in technology around Akron and the rest of the world. Now here's your host, Gene Destro. This week, part two of our series, Science Fiction Meets Science Fact, with a conversation about how seemingly far-fetched ideas featured in sci-fi books, movies, and even cartoons have become real-world inventions, and what that could mean for the people trying to patent them. University of Akron School of Law professor Camilla Hurdy and intellectual property attorney and former UA law professor Daniel Breen have written a new essay on the topic that will be published soon in the Michigan Technology Law Review. Patent law requires inventors to disclose to the public their new inventions, and in exchange they get a patent. But to get a patent, you have to, quote, enable it. You have to show that the invention can actually work, right? You have to describe it in enough detail that others can make and use it. And what we argue in this essay is that, in fact, the literary genre of science fiction, so anything from, say, the Jurassic Park film to Mary Shelley's Frankenstein to Star Trek, that the literary genre of science fiction actually has its own enablement requirement, that the fans of science fiction actually demand that the inventions depicted in sci-fi meet a minimum standard of scientific plausibility. And so, yeah, we do see this parallel between patents as requiring inventors to disclose important technical information and science fiction, which actually perhaps inadvertently, because of what the fans demand, also discloses important scientific technical information. And we even go and dig into the patent record here, and we actually find that if you look at some of the famous patents back in time, you'll see that some of them directly trace their origins to works of science fiction. Really? So can you tell me what some of those are? Sure, sure. So, for example, the submarine, the submarine patented in 1896 by Simon Lake, actually traces itself to Jules Verne, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. In 1870, Verne describes an elongated cylinder with conical ends, very like a cigar in shape. If we want to sink 3,000 feet, I have supplementary reservoirs capable of holding 100 tons of water. Well, it turns out that Lake patent was inspired by Jules Verne. Simon Lake designed and submitted plans to the Navy in 1892. In 1894, he built his first experimental submarine inspired by Jules Verne. And in fact, Verne sent him a congratulatory telegram. That's just one example. We've got several others, including the cell phone, which many fans of Star Trek know. The original series features episodes such as Communicator, in which members of Starfleet speak directly into devices to give commands and speak with other personnel. Later on, uh, Martin Cooper, 1975, patents radio telephone system. And this has certain connections to this, what was described in Star Trek, so on, all the way to the helicopter, the taser. So, yeah, we got a bunch of examples here. So, okay, here's a hypothetical. And to get Dan in on the conversation, I'll ask this question. Let's say I'm a writer and I write a science fiction novel or even like a, a TV series like Maxwell Smart with his 
shoe phone, right? What if Mm -hmm. I write that and then somebody looks at what I wrote and says, hey, that's a cool idea. I'm going to file for a patent. If I can prove that they got their idea from me, do I get part of the money they make on the invention? Well, that's a great question. Actually, one that I looked at in a paper several years ago. The uh, Well, the short answer is about the money, not, not so much. But what's more interesting, I think, to me is whether that later inventor would be able to patent that at all, because the creation of a work of fiction, be it a novel, television series, or what have you, creates what we call prior art in the patent world. And prior art is, in essence, anything that's already out there and publicly known or knowable. And those things that are already out there cannot later be patented. The interesting question, in, uh, and let's use the Get Smart shoe phone example, is if somebody did manage to invent a real working shoe phone and file a patent application on it, the patent office would be able to look at Get Smart and ask the question, you know, does this disclosure in Get Smart rise to the level of something that should preclude a later real-world inventor from getting the patent protection on the actual creation? And the short answer is that rarely would that be an impediment to a patent because in Get Smart, we only know that it's a shoe and it functions as a phone. We're not given any other information about how it actually works. Of course, back in those days, the uh, phones were all hardwired into the wall. So without that kind of description, to enable somebody working in telecommunication or electronics to, to have something to go on to make that work, it wouldn't preclude somebody from patenting. However, there still is a value in looking to get smart for what we call evidence of obviousness of an invention. If somebody did already invent a cell phone, get smart tells us at least that the idea of implementing it into an article of clothing and in particular a shoe would be an obvious extension of that technology. Now, there are a few examples that I found where an invention did preclude a patent from being granted, one of which was involving Robert Heinlein. In a series of novels, he described what was essentially a modern-day waterbed, and a subsequent effort to patent that was thwarted because of the prior art created by Heinlein's descriptions. Uh, which were fairly detailed. And that's an important part of our paper is, you know, the level of detail describing how the technology works in science fiction is really the important test for whether it reaches the level of plausibility and can spur real-world inventive activity like with the waterbed, which Charles Hall tried to patent and later did, but only after adding some additional significant technological distinction. My favorite example of prior art precluding patenting was when a Donald Duck cartoon comic strip shows Huey, Dewey, Louie, and Uncle Scrooge on a yacht, and the yacht gets sunken, and they raise it by pumping a bunch of ping pong balls through a hose into the hull to displace the water. Well, years later, there was a a tanker that had sunk in the Persian Gulf, and uh, Danish inventor Carl Kreuer did essentially that. He made billions of tiny hollow plastic pellets pumped them into the hull to raise the ship and prevent further environmental damage. That effort was unable to be patented. So the simplicity of that idea of using hollow pellets to displace water made even something so simple as a comic strip, you know, by my standard, a work of science fiction. So that's interesting. So going back to that particular one, 
I'm the guy that puts the pellets in the oil tanker, right? So then I could get paid for the one time I did it, but I couldn't get paid if I wanted to, you know, put a patent on it and keep getting royalties on it forever, right? Is that what you're saying? Well, that's right. You you would be paid for your services and your efforts, but to attempt to control the use of that technology via a patent is no longer an option for you. Oh, and we should also add that there, you know, there are other intellectual property systems here, such as copyright, trade secret, potentially sort of implied in fact contract, that if there really was an idea stolen from, say, Robert Heinlein had written about the waterbed and his idea were taken, you might potentially have some form of compensation. It just wouldn't be necessarily under patent law. And in fact, the more likely effect would be that Heinlein might actually preclude the, the later patent. So just kind of add. Yeah. I see. Well, so, the, so, so you might be able to like get a copyright on it, but not a patent. Is that what you're saying? Uh, well, copyright law doesn't allow protection for mere ideas, but for certainly for for the work, right? Stranger in a Strange Land, the Donald Duck cartoons, those will be protected by copyright. Absolutely, the the expressions in there. The idea, the mere idea of the waterbed, you cannot use copyright to protect. There might potentially be some kind of a trade secret claim depending on how that works, but not in that situation because Heinlein disclosed it to the public. So, no, you're not going to be able to protect your mere idea through intellectual property. Your option is really the patent system, and that's the focus of, of our paper is that the interface between works of science fiction and the patent system, right? We, like we've got right hand, left hand, we've got these sci-fi authors who may well be brilliant, and then we've got these actual science inventors, right, with PhDs, engineering degrees. They're also uh, brilliant in their own ways, and, they're, and we argue that there's, there's a connection there, that they're interfacing with one another. That's awesome. So just as a point of fact, did the waterbed idea come from Stranger in a Strange Land? I'll let Dan so take that. Yeah, so I, I actually, so I don't know if, if Prior to Heinlein, anybody had conceived of that or written about it. We only know that when Charles Hall attempted to patent it, Heinlein was an impediment because Heinlein's work did precede Hall. So it may be that you know, somebody far before Heinlein ever put pen to paper had come up with that concept. But, but I do want to emphasize that the Heinlein example, the Donald Duck example, those are the exception rather than, than the rule. Usually works of science fiction, a nugget of scientific truth or scientific hypothesis, and they expand on it in a way that is described in plausible terms to stimulate the imagination, but doesn't have anywhere near the level of enabling disclosure that we see in, in the Donald Duck and Heinlein examples. But we nonetheless argue that even that lesser level of description that gives enough of a plausibility that the reader can appreciate the science that's being described to them seems to have those threads that connect to real-world inventors, as, as Camilla detailed earlier. That was intellectual property attorney Daniel Breen and University of Akron Law professor Camilla Hurdy. You can find a copy of their essay, Enabling Science Fiction, on SSRN.com. And that's it for now. Stay happy and healthy, and we'll see you again next week. That was This Week in Tech with Gene Destro. Tune in next week for more tech news on 93.5-1590-WAKR and WAKR.net. <laughs>